welcome to today's end of 2022 special at the Review of Democracy. Today we look back at eventful, certainly also tragic and perhaps hopeful year around the globe. My name is Michał Matlak and it is my pleasure to talk with our editors, Renata Uitz, uh, Laszlo Brust, Oliver Garner, Ferenc Lazzo and Kasia Krzyżanowska. Hello everyone, it's good to see you all. As a first question, let me ask you which book or article you've read this year that impressed you the most and in what way? Let me start with, with Laszlo. Thank you. In a good Hungarian way, I, I say the answer is uh, that I start with two books, not one, uh, that I loved uh, so much. Uh, one was, loved, perhaps I was impressed. One was the brief uh, and short book of Fukuyama on uh, liberalism and its discontent. Uh, it's a really excellent account uh, of the strengths and weaknesses of liberalism uh, and also about the degeneration of liberalism, both on the left and the right. Uh, it's a very good overview. Then I really liked uh, the book uh, of, uh, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, Signe Larsen, about the constitutional theory of federalism. It's a very interesting account of uh, federalism as a political form of association. And it's, uh, I'm dealing now uh, with this issue of, of comparative federalism from more political economic perspective, but uh, uh, that uh, book was really enlightening to me. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Kasia? Yeah, thank you. Generally, this year, I was really satisfied with all most of the books that I've read this year. And I try to catch up with some of the classics like Natalia Ginsburg or Dino Buzzati. But at the same time, I tried to stay up to date with the new releases in literature and in academic books. So my top, I have top three uh, books, and these are the IP's uh, three coming of age at the end of history, Colm Toybin's uh, The Magician, and Tomas Pavone, The Ghostwriters, Lawyers and the Politics Behind the Judicial Construction of Europe. The first two were already mentioned in our lists of the end of, uh, of the books, the, of the key books. So maybe I can say a few words about Pavone's book. So generally I was super impressed by the author's super nice language, even though it was an academic book, it was super nicely written and his methodology. And also it challenged the most established thesis about EU law. So Pavone rejected the judicial construction of the EU legal architecture and has shown that these were domestic lawyers that played a crucial role in constructing the, judicial, the, the European uh, legal integration. And it was an empowering thesis for me. Thank you very much. Oliver. Thank you very much, Michal. So the collection of articles that has impressed me most this year has been the Foreign Affairs Centennial Edition, entitled The Age of Uncertainty, which was published in September, October 2022. And in particular, the article entitled The Weakness of Xi Jinping by Kai Jia, who is a former professor at the Central Party School of the Chinese Communist Party, made a significant impression upon me. The article provides a former insider's perspective upon the regime in China, and I believe that it demystifies its structures by breaking down the motivations and incentives of those who control the levers of power within this superpower. And I think this is so important because if we wish to oppose anti-democratic structures in our work, I think it's crucial first that we understand how they function. Thank you very much. Terence? 
thank you, Michal. Uh, I really appreciated uh, Max Fisher's book, The Chaos Machine, uh, which is a really disturbing account of uh, social media's harmful impact. Uh, it is a book that covers a number of hotspots across the globe. And it has really made me understand that the, the reason many dangerous political trends have strengthened in recent years can be directly connected uh, to the algorithms that try to maximize uh, user engagement. You know, Fisher shows, for example, uh, that looking for and finding relevant treatment for an illness online usually does not take very long. So the way to make people engage more is to make them fanatically committed uh, to a cause like uh, anti-vaccination. So in other words, what he shows really powerfully is that a primary aim of these algorithms is to make people obsess about various uh, causes. And of course, this amounts uh, to a path of radicalization, and it can quickly uh, lead to the breakdown of any uh, possibility of dialogue, really. And I think this connection between maximizing engagement on the one hand and radicalization on the other, which is what I think social media giants have been trying to do, uh, is, is really a crucial point. And I think it's also the, the point that they've been trying to deny, right? Of course, this uh, exposure would in a way undermine their basic narrative and would in a sense undermine their entire business model. So again, the, the fact that this book, The Chaos Machine, exposes this connection makes it, I think, a really essential read. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Renata. I was particularly happy to see that Lilia Schwartz's book on Brazilian autocracy finally came out in English translation. The book was written before the election of President Lula, and it's essentially short user's manual to her masterful co-authored book on, on Brazil's autobiography. Uh, it gives us a, a particularly insightful take on, on the deep roots of illiberal practices that, that mar seemingly stable and sort of consistent competitive constitutional democracies. Another book which has very little to do with democracy on the surface, which I enjoyed a lot, is Caroline Knowles's book. It's an urban anthropology called Serious Money, Walking Plutocratic London. It's a COVID book, uh, it's very socially distanced. She's walking the streets of London and looks at the transformation that ill-gained wealth makes to the texture and fabric of a city, not only to, to housing, but also professions, to, to schools and, and daily lives. And finally, um, I'm reading something really heartwarming and scary at the moment. It's Maria Ressa's autobiography on how to stand up to a dictator. It's a fantastic story, not only about professionalism and camaraderie, but also trust and the work media organizations need to do to reach out to citizen journalism in order to support democracy and democratic renewal. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and if, if I may mention one book, uh, it's also not directly linked to democracy, but I think it's also important. It's the uh, Michael Ignatieff's book on consolation, uh, Finding Solace in, in Dark Times, which is a, a very interesting series of portraits of mostly artists or philosophers searching for, for consolation. I guess that this was 
a year where we all needed consolation and that's 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 why i think that that uh, to look at the, the ways a consolation can be found in arts or philosophy is, is just very very important it's also beautifully beautifully written uh, the book was published in 2021 but we we interviewed uh, ignatiev uh, this year in january this year so uh, we encourage the, the our uh, listeners to, to to take a look read or, or listen to this interview so let me now turn to the second question and the second question is which was your favorite uh, revdem release uh, also including our our events uh, this year and and why it, it was the case uh, let me start from Ferenc. if you allow me to mention something that i have been uh, involved uh, with in a very minor role I, my personal highlight would be the conversation about this new monograph uh, socialism goes global uh, with james mark uh, steffi marung and uh, peter opor uh, their book is the result of a large uh, research project uh, that has dealt with the history of the connections between eastern europe and the global south and i think they tell really many uh, important stories that have never really been told before that have never even been researched properly before um, and i thought that the conversation with them here at the ref them uh, brought out uh, many of the intricacies of this really fascinating and really highly complex uh, subject. Uh, and it, I think they, they managed to shed light uh, on quite a number of the different dimensions of East-South encounters during the Cold War, and also how these histories uh, continue uh, to shape the world we live in uh, today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Oliver. Thank you, Michal. My favorite Revdem released this year was the remaking of Constitutional Democracy, which was a podcast I conducted with Paolo Sandro that was released in October. And it's my favorite release because the recording process was really enjoyable, as Paolo and I met in a really charming rooftop bar in Manchester in England. And I think as a consequence of this setting and the ambience, the conversation was really wide ranging and free flowing. It took in topics all the way from speed limits in Manchester to the death of Queen Elizabeth II, which I think is also a testament to the applicability of the theoretical insights of Paolo's book, which I would really recommend to our, our listeners. And I think the podcast also represented the freedom of this opening up that's happened post-pandemic or maybe <laughs> still in the midst of the pandemic uh, and this opening up has happened at least within the United Kingdom uh, but also in Hungary and I think this was a real contrast to the circumstances in which Revdem was launched when all of our activities uh, were conducted uh, via Zoom so that was my my favorite uh, Revdem engagement of this year. Thank you, thank you very much. Kasia. Yeah, thanks. So once again, I was spoiled for choice. There were so many nice, great contributions this year for the them that I have two pieces exactly. So first one would be the first conversation with Kieran Klaus Patel on his book on the history of European integration. And this was because uh, of the attention uh, Patel pays to the problem of European values and why they are not so firmly institutionally secured in the EU. I have not read the book, so this was a perfect opportunity for me to engage with the whole ideas that Patel gave. Uh, and this topic of values is obviously important in the context of the current floor problems with um, safeguarding the Article 2 in the EU. And also he points out to the traditions that were uh, in the making, or there were in place uh, when the European communities were started. So the imperial tradition. Uh, and this was really interesting for me. And secondly, it was Michal's piece uh, with Andras Bozoki on his book on uh, Hungarian transition of uh, 89. And this was just out of personal interest uh, in the prominent role of intellectuals in the democratic transition. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Laszlo? 
again, I mentioned three pieces. Uh, uh, one is this podcast uh, uh, with uh, Nancy Fraser, uh, done by Vera Stepanovic uh, on cannibal capitalism. This is an enlightening piece of how different crises uh, are entering into capitalism. Uh, demo- the crisis of democracy, crisis of healthcare, climate, racial injustice, and how they uh, uh, are linked together. But was a very nice uh, piece. Then there was a, uh, an op-ed uh, by Kvyachenska uh, uh, and Skigin, privilege, Western Europe and the Russian war against uh, Ukraine. I would love to see more uh, of that kind of things uh, in Revdem, this kind of op-ed that uh, uh, takes uh, issue with uh, the approach that they call west planning, uh, uh, how the Western experts and politicians uh, try to explain Ukrainians uh, uh, what to do. I think that was a nice piece. And there was a third uh, by a conversation between uh, George Enyadi and uh, Jennifer McCoy uh, about uh, the uh, cartel parties, when, car- when parties become cartels. It was very interesting to see how uh, in the conversation they turned a topic that was uh, very deeply explored in uh, Europe, uh, actually initiated by Peter Mayer and many others. Uh, about uh, cartelization of the party system and how they apply that to Latin America, how they uh, use uh, uh, and extend uh, the way uh, this concept was evolved, uh, evolving or developed uh, in Europe. So these are the three pieces that I like most. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Renata. Well, in terms of a, a feature on, on the website, which I thought was really interesting and followed with, with great interest, is the Party Co-op series that was convened by, by Jolt Enyedi, partly because it was really interesting topic-wise, but also because it, it uh, covers diverse genres. And I have two, two favorite interviews, and, and actually the two editors are, are here on the call. Uh, one of them is with, with Till van Raden on universalism and, and history. It's a topic that interests me greatly. Um, so congratulations on, 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 on that. And uh, the other interview was actually conducted by, by Kasha with Samantha Rose, uh, Rose Hill on, on thinking like Arendt in times of, of despair. So, so these are my, my favorite features. If I need to name plus one, then that would definitely be the roundtable after the Italian elections. So that was very well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if I may just, may, may, may just add uh, my favorite uh, releases. So, so one is Kasia's interview with uh, Stefan Auer, Reflections of a European Man, uh, on his book European Disintegration. Like, firstly, the, the interview was, was very interesting and indeed uh, even for those who didn't read the book, it was like a very interesting way to to get to know uh, our ideas. But I think that the, another thing is, is that you know it, it's kind of we can see that we have a kind of a series of a kind of a, uh, this this interesting ways to uh, uh, look critically at the European project, 
and uh, so so our is just one of the of the, of the authors who who can be identified as, as this interesting critics the other one is of course michael wilkinson i remember uh, oliver's interview with him another one is marcus padberg i think and kasha interviewed him i think uh, the year, year year before 2021 so he, here we can see an interesting series also ferris interviews sometimes uh, can be seen as, as a part of this uh, of this story and so i think that that's, that's an interesting uh, um, series that, that we are uh, working on in, in Revdem. And the, the other interview I wanted to mention is, is uh, Ferenc's interview with uh, Timothy Schenk, uh, which is a, 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 like the topic of the interview was, was his book, Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy. I guess that is the one of the most interesting books on, on, the, on the US, uh, published uh, recently. And uh, and this um, concentration on the how majorities majorities are being formed and also focus on the new, new deal here is, is like very interesting. So I guess that's one, one of the best uh, interviews uh, uh, I heard uh, in the uh, in the last year. And and the, 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 also the when it comes to the events, uh, one should mention the the two events on Brazilian elections. I guess that that's uh, if one wants to know more about. Uh, what happened in Brazil, uh, then these two panels organized by, by Renata uh, are, are a very good source uh, to, to, to learn, learn about it and also learn about the, the, the consequences uh, of, of these, uh, these, these elections. So let me now move uh, to the third question uh, about uh, uh, the, the surprises we had uh, uh, this year. So I wanted to ask you which of them post uh, surprised you uh, the most and, and, and why was it the case? And here I would start with, with Kasia. Yes, so I will not respond by one post, but I will rather point to one phenomenon, and it was the, well, let's say it directly, uh, it was the failure to um, somehow attract uh, scholars to share their ideas on which books and uh, which movies they prefer, they like, uh, the movies or the books they um, connect with democracy or depict democracy. Uh, I was rather surprised by the low responsiveness of the scholars to, to share these kind of insights. And uh, because of the reluctance, we managed to publish only two uh, posts relating to this uh, issue. So it was a post by Joseph Weiler, uh, who shared his 10 books uh, that relate to democracy, and uh, a post by uh, Jeffrey Goldfarb. And this was it. So hopefully next year will be more, we'll bring more responses from the scholars regarding their... Exactly, exactly. So, so, so we'll... Uh... We will come back to this uh, next year to see uh, if, if, if it got better. Um, Oliver, if I may ask you now. Thanks, Michal. So the RevDem post that surprised me the most this year was the op-ed by Irina Domarov and Stefano Palestini entitled Ukraine, Not a War About Democracy. I think the title of this op-ed was clearly intended to provoke, and this can be a very useful tool in order to generate debate on online platforms. But I think beyond the surprise of this provocative title, I think the op-ed does advance an argument that could be seen as persuasive if we understand it through the lens of the claim that Ukraine's status as a fledgling democracy was a contingent factor. It was not the reason why Russia launched its invasion, and instead this was driven by a form of ethno-imperial logic. So if Ukraine had been an autocracy like Belarus, yet still had resisted Russian influence, and I suppose the argument of the op-ed authors would be the invasion would still have taken place. I also think the consequences of the publication, uh, even if it was surprising at first, were very valuable, as it provoked a response from Kasper Zelensky and Torevik on the 9th of April entitled The War in Ukraine is all about democracy versus dictatorship. 
I think it's important the two authors were from Chile. So there was a perspective from the global south, which perhaps speaks to what Laja was saying before about this, this West-blaining issue. It was great to have cross-regional perspectives. And finally, I also found the internal discussions that we had as editors uh, during the pre-publication phase and the editorial process really engaging and very valuable. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Renata, could I ask you now? I'm, I'm going to be boring because I, I would nominate uh, the Ukraine coverage uh, in, in general. And, and I liked also a piece on, on the discourse about Ukraine as, as privilege, which is, I think, was mentioned already by Elizabeth Kvichinska and, and Pavel Skigen. And, and I think that exactly as I, I liked very much the, the party co-op series, uh probably uh a nice way to start the year would be to to package the ukraine coverage maybe with new tags as the debate about the future of ukraine within the eu goes on i think that that these posts continue to contain extremely important insights especially as as the eu is also trying to control spoilers on on the margins Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Laszlo? Yeah, um, very boring. Uh, again, uh, the whole debate about uh, Ukraine was uh, uh, surprisingly good. Uh, uh, I was really very pleased uh, uh, by the quality uh, of the debate, and especially uh, the East-South uh, sorry, sorry, East uh, debate about uh, the nature uh, of the conflict. That was, that was really refreshing. The other uh, very interesting surprise, uh, and again positive surprise, was the interview of uh, Kasha uh, with uh, Sinjel Larsen uh, about uh, the feder federal telos uh, of the European Union. This was refreshingly uh, uh, interesting uh, in a very sharp, very uh, pointed way, uh, telling about uh, uh, the problems uh, uh, of EU from the perspective of constitutional theory, and also uh, uh, in, a, in this very brief uh, uh, interview, giving uh, also a historical background about the difference between empire uh, and state and federation. That was uh, uh, really uh, a neat, a very nice uh, uh, interview, adding actually uh, uh, and calling my attention, frankly, uh, to the book that I mentioned as one of the best books that I read this year. Thank you very much. Ferenc. Uh, I would say the release that surprised me and also provoked me the most uh, this year was the conversation that uh, you two, uh, Laszlo and Michal, have conducted with Wolfgang Streeck. I should say that Strake is really not someone I intuitively agree with on a number of issues. I don't really quite agree with his highly critical depiction of European integration as a kind of imperial project that is essentially controlled by Germany and France and that basically enforces neoliberalization. I also don't quite share his very pessimistic assessment of the future prospects of this project. But I found several of his arguments really intriguing, for instance, about the increased bargaining power of the peripheries that he mentions. And I also thought that his alternative vision of Europe as a platform for cooperation was really stimulating. And so I think he, he in the end of this interview, he really managed to connect some of his main ideas 
to, to really problematic developments uh, in recent decades, which he has experienced. And I think that made it a very powerful and in many ways very convincing uh, interview in the end. Thank you. Thank you very much. So if I may mention just, just one more technical thing, and that's that's what sort of surprised me in the last year, that's the change of the kind of source of movement on our website. Uh, because in 2021, it was mostly Twitter, then Facebook, and then Google. And now it's by, by, by far uh, Google, that is the, the main source. And so we can see that uh, Twitter and Facebook are much, much less uh, important here. Uh, we still have a, 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 a big uh, positive change, I would say, in terms of numbers. So, so we are, our website is, is more and more visited. But uh, as I say, it seems that the, the algorithm of, of Twitter and, and Facebook is not as favorable as it, it used to be. Facebook was never very much favorable, I'd say, but Twitter was much more favorable favorable than than it, than it was in the in the last year so that that's that was an interesting source of of, of uh, interesting surprise for me so if i may now if i may move to to, to our next question uh, i wanted to ask you about the the most significant political event of, of last year uh, both in europe and, and more uh, more globally and i will start start with last i think no question about uh, the uh, historical relevance uh, of the war uh, in ukraine uh, and uh, i'm sure that uh, many of you will uh, mention the same thing i think that it will uh, it's a major conjuncture that will uh, reshape uh, the way uh, geopolitics uh, is done it set in motion uh, several things that are not visible yet but will be visible very soon uh, first of all about uh, uh, what's going on in europe uh, in defense uh, uh, in economic integration, political integration. So uh, I think that's the most important change. Thank you very much, uh, Ferenc. Uh, as Lassel has just uh, mentioned, this is unfortunately uh, probably the easiest uh, question to answer today. The massive uh, escalation of uh, Russia's uh, war of uh, aggression against Ukraine has clearly been of epochal significance. Uh, and it is also, I think, a conflict that I have personally not really expected uh, to develop uh, in this drastic fashion, despite uh, all the uh, warnings already uh, last year. Now, Europe is obviously no longer at the center of uh, global affairs, uh, but I would still insist that, that this is a major war that has uh, uh, global significance, for sure, even if it has actually received uh, rather different uh, responses uh, when it comes to the West and when it comes to the global South, which I think one should uh, explore further. Further. And now I should maybe mention something else as well to, you know, not, not, not to make all of us um, uh, sort of talk about the same things uh, here. I would say the elections in Brazil uh, were another hugely uh, significant uh, moment. Uh, Brazil is obviously a very important country and also a major frontline state uh, when it comes to the future of democracy. And uh, this year's outcomes were rather fortunate in the end, but also very far from reassuring, I would say. So I, I would guess Brazil will remain a contested site for many years to come uh, when it comes uh, to the quality and also to the meaning uh, of democracy. It's a natural moment to, to ask now Renata what she thinks was, was the most important event as, as she is our Brazil person, I can say, I guess. Well, I, I, I think that uh, Laszlo and, and, and Ferenc stole the, the two, two prized possessions and I will come back to Brazil, I promise, in the last question. What I think will be consequential, and that's a, a slightly different adjective here, is definitely the passing of the Queen and the falling apart of the Commonwealth. Uh, this is not an event that you, you'd think of 
as a as a major political event on on a global scale except that essentially what comes after her passing and the redefinition of a global network of allegedly aspiring democracy democracies around the the world where politics corruption decolonization empire and legacies of of failure of the international community mark the political landscape will be a massively consequential undercurrent when we talk about the future of democracy around the world so it's more consequential than than significant and i would like to put it on the map mm-hmm. thank you very much uh, kasha uh, yeah i will be no different uh, in pointing out ukraine and war um it inflicted completely senseless suffering and unnecessary deaths provoked false migration but also changed the perception of russia in the eu and hopefully the right assessment of russia of the russian state as a degenerated regime and utterly unreliable partner in economic relations will shape the future eu and uh, energy and economic policies and still hopefully it will change the perception of the old member states of the states of eastern enlargement so perhaps their expertise so the eastern states expertise in relations with russia will be taken more seriously into account when setting eu foreign policy goals and this invasion might also have larger geopolitical implications and will lead to the marginalization of, of russia on on a global scale hopefully thank you very much oliver Thanks, Miho. So I have actually taken a slightly different tack, and I believe that the protests against coronavirus restrictions in China are actually the most significant purely political event of 2022, if we understand politics in terms of processes of citizen engagement with governance structures. And I believe this because I would argue that China's fusion regime of political authoritarianism and economic capitalism and economic liberalism is the major challenge and model to democracy in the 21st century. And in my opinion, the widespread dissatisfaction amongst Chinese citizens over restrictions on their liberties demonstrates that this new form of regime could be built on foundations of sand. The optimistic interpretation is that individuals in China have shown that they will only accept restrictions on their engagement with input and throughput legitimacy so long as they're able to benefit from the output legitimacy of economic growth and stability and opportunities to engage in the global marketplace. So I think the protests show that once these output benefits are removed, the acquiescence of the population has also dissipated accordingly. So I think this is very significant because it demonstrates to me that there's not yet a totalitarianism of the mind within the citizenry in China. If I if I may now uh, just add two events to the to the ones you mentioned that are of course uh, very important. One is the, the protest in, in, in Iran, the, the, the women's protest in, in Iran that is obviously a, a very important and uh, um, pretty su- surprising. What was surprising actually is the kind of the, the perseverance of, of Iranian w- women. I, I guess that we, we might we might witness uh, a significant change in, in Iran in the, in the coming year and, and it's definitely something that we will also cover uh, in Revdom. And the other event that I wanted to mention is the failure of Trump Trumpism in, in the US. Um, I guess that this is, this is an interesting development. Uh, we'll see what are the consequences of this of this failure. But um, it, it was a bit surprising, I guess, and uh, uh, it, it, that both with the, the developments of, of, of Iran might be, I guess, a, 
as a, a little source of, of hope for, for liberal democrats globally. Is, if, if I could, could move now to, the, to our last question, meaning a large-scale transformation question, so what do you see as this uh, consequential large-scale transformation? Uh, it can be both positive or negative that uh, the, the, the passing year has, has brought. And here I would start from Oliver. Thanks again, Michal. So I, here I believe that the most consequential large-scale transformation of the year has indeed been the Rubicon that Vladimir Putin crossed by invading Ukraine. I would suggest that this decision regresses not only back beyond the post-1989 end-of-history consensus, but also further back to 1945 and beyond that post-imperial paradigm in which state sovereignty was enshrined as, as a core principle of international uh, relations, the core principle. And I think this is consequential as a large scale transformation, because it could also dare other actors to transgress upon sovereignty. So depending on the outcome of the war, I believe we could witness a reconsideration of the taboo subject of whether the state is the functionally optimal unit of organization and whether democracy is the normatively desirable means of organization. We've heard already in other answers, interesting considerations of empire and imperialism. And it seems that that Pandora's box has been reopened in the discourses we've seen around the invasion. And of course, this trend could be exacerbated by the existential challenges posed by our climate as we continue through this century. So not exactly the, the positive uh, spin on things, but indeed, I think that's, that could be the most consequential transformation at, at the global scale from 2022. Thank you very much, uh, Renata. Well, I, I think I'd put a slightly different spin on Oliver's trend. And I, I, I think that what I find the most scary is how red lines are moved. So if, it's, if it were passing of the Rubicon, it would be lovely, but it seems that the red lines very easily move in an international space where illiberal actors get to, get to cooperate and, and push the boundaries of both narratives, but also norms. Ultimately, we are talking about potential scenarios of nuclear war and how it might not be that bad after all. But in terms of a, a positive development, uh, when you when you look at the American midterms or or the Brazilian elections or even elections in Slovenia, what is especially important for democracy watchers is the significance of grassroots political mobilization in favor of democracy. And very often this happens against the odds of voter intimidation, strategic election reforms that mean to disenfranchise those who take to to the polls against the odds and despite this information we should pay a lot more attention to popular mobilization for democracy and and this is the trend where the protest in china and iran also fit so that's my positive news for the year thank you very much uh, laszlo i continue this ukrainian line uh, but from a different perspective that uh, uh, i think that uh, one of the side events of this uh, Ukraine war was the decision uh, of uh, starting a new wave of enlargement. Uh, uh, both uh, Ukraine, Moldova and then Western Balkans, uh, two countries from the Western Balkans came in and uh, more uh, are going to follow. 
we don't see the uh, uh, still how this uh, uh, wave of enlargement is going to uh, unfold. That was also uh, unpredictable in the 90s uh, when the Eastern enlargement, the first wave of Eastern enlargement unfolded. But it will be very consequential uh, for the whole European integration because the war uh, put on uh, 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 a very sharp uh, uh, line. Uh, the uh, three weaknesses uh, of the European Union. It's absence of hard power, it's, meaning it's defenseless, uh, doesn't have any kind of such power, and that has already uh, 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 yielded some changes in uh, governmental policies. It's weakness of soft power. It wants to extend uh, 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 its normative power, first of all, in democracy, rule of law, uh, uh, in a situation in, in countries that are very troubled uh, uh, from this perspective, while it's uh, not able to solve these problems on its own uh, inside. And it's uh, problems of uh, economic integration, that uh, it wants to integrate uh, really uh, troubled economies uh, while it's uh, not able to put on sustainable economic uh, paths uh, uh, some of its own uh, member states. Uh, uh, and actually, uh, uh, the way integration unfolds and what the politics of integration unfolds, uh, it actually EU is part, uh, the European integration is part uh, of uh, the problem. So I think from longer run, uh, we have to deal a lot. We have already have actually a uh, panel on that. Uh, uh, in February, we will have uh, uh, the European Parliament uh, uh, a workshop on that. Uh, and that, uh, in the longer term in Europe, I think that uh, will be very consequential. Thank you very much. Kasia. Yeah, it will be no different. And uh, this is what I previously mentioned. I think that the transformation in attitudes of different countries towards Russia is unprecedented. And I recall here what uh, the Commission, of, uh, the President of the Commission of von der Leyen said in her annual address that uh, we should have listened to the Eastern European states. And I think it's a genuine marking of the political shift within the EU. And this might really impact the geopolitics of our contemporary world. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ferenc. Uh, thank you, Michal. I would start by saying that the widespread destruction uh, in Ukraine and the traumatizing experiences of most uh, Ukrainians this year have uh, doubtlessly amounted to a massive uh, negative transformation. And it will clearly take years uh, and much effort uh, to, uh, to achieve some form of rehabilitation or reconstruction of this country and its people. I would also agree that the most consequential political transformation we have observed is what I would call the drastic self-exclusion of Russia from Europe and also from, from the West more generally. I wouldn't say this is historically unprecedented. I think if you think of early Soviet history, for instance, I think it may be seen as, as somewhat similar for sure. But this is certainly the greatest and the most problematic story of our time, of the post-Cold War decade, this transformation and the self-exclusion of Russia, which I think is quite difficult to explain rationally. Archie Brown, whom we have interviewed, I think pointed to the, to the, same, to the same fact. Uh, that, that there's no uh, necessary reason for this to be the case now, but, but it, has, it has come to be. So I would say that, um, that this is, again, a sharp separation that will take at least a generation uh, to undo, uh, and therefore it's highly consequential. I am less convinced uh, that the consequences uh, of the inter in terms of the internal reorganization 
of the Western Alliance and the internal reorganization of the EU will be similarly consequential. There are some signs that that might be the case, but I think that's much less clear at this point. Thank you very much. And if I just may add to this long and very interesting list, the, the question of, of uh, the Russian opposition. And, and I would say that here, the de development we, we saw last year was, was rather negative. We didn't see really a, a significant movement uh, uh, in Russia. Uh, there are smaller groups, and I think that, that we should watch them carefully in the, the coming months and years. But it seems, for example, when we, confer, when we compare the Russian opposition with the Belarusian opposition, we can see that they are, they are much less organized, actually, and that uh, there is no clear alternative to the, to the regime uh, we are uh, watching. In, in, in Russia, but uh, if I may now uh, move to the to the last point of of, of today's special and welcome our guests uh, who joined us for a short conversation. These are authors of the most popular op-ed uh, published uh, this year, uh, op an op-ed that was uh, mentioned today by by many many of you, and uh, and I guess it will be it will be also discussed in the future and hopefully also the, these authors will write for us in the future. Uh, so let me welcome uh, Elżbieta Kwiecińska and Paweł Skigin, who who wrote this op-ed. In the times of writing, if I'm not mistaken, they were both researchers at the European University Institute. Now Ella is affiliated at the University of Warsaw, and Pavel is still at the, at the EUI, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, actually, at that time, I was already in Warsaw. <laughs> I was uh, already a postdoc at the University of Warsaw, and Pavel is still a researcher at the EUI. Perfect. So, so if I could now just ask you very briefly about the, the most important reasons why you why you decided to write this 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 op-ed. Okay. Um, so uh, from the very beginning at the war, I was very much involved. Uh, so I did like twenty-four hours multitasking, uh, like uh, translating from Ukrainian into other languages. All those small tasks like signs on um, Polish railway station, I, tr I translated, uh, I um, hosted refugees, uh, those whom I couldn't cost, uh, I uh, passed them to other members of my family or friends. Then, you know, I was hosting my friends and I created a storage <laughs> with all medical aid and bulletproof vests in my house so i was you know also sending some aid to ukraine and uh, free volunteers ukrainian volunteers uh, stayed at my place so it was you know i created a small um, humanitarian aid center at my at my uh, flat in warsaw because this is what i believed was right to do at that time Mm, and I I think what influenced me a lot is that I'm, I'm actually from Warsaw. So it was a city that experienced so many, you know, uh, uprisings, revolutions. So, you know, as, maybe as a historian, it was natural for me, you know, to act this way. I don't know. Somehow I believe this is the right thing to do. And I did not have to be honest, moral concerns, you know. Uh, I did not send, you know, any military thing because it was forbidden, like just, uh, you know, uh, protective equipment uh, to the army. But uh, 
what triggered me, you know, what especially triggered me was uh, a story that uh, one Polish friend of mine shared uh, on on her social media and comments under this story. Um, this was, I think, popular story about a grandma, like an elderly Ukrainian woman who threw a jar with uh, cucumbers at a drone that was um, flying next to her window. So she threw this jar and, you know, and, you know, I was excited about, you know, her activism, about her agency. While some of my Western friends were very critical that it's, you know, um, proving the total war. You know, what I, you know, my position was rather empathy with this woman. While their position was, you know, doing moral judgments. So now I understand, you know, I'm less emotional than back then in uh, in April. But back then, you know, I was really triggered. Like, what this woman should have done should have been should she uh, have been killed because you know of our you know uh, <laughs> moral sensitivity. Yes, that was the story that triggered me to write the article. And could you ask Pavel? Uh, about his perspective, because uh, I guess it must be a bit different. Hello, Pavel. It must be a bit different uh, because of your background also. Yes. Hello. For me, yeah, it was a different situation because I was in New York for exchange at the NYU. And uh, uh, also, yeah, it's different because I work on the ethics of sanctions and uh, just war theory. Uh, so let's say the story Ella told about, uh, you know, the concerns with the drone and the granny taking part is kind of not a surprise for me because this, you know, idea that by uh, kind of um, making a line between combatants and non-combatants, we uh, kind of endanger the... Uh, letter and uh, uh, make them in a way legitimate targets. It's not uh, kind of doesn't come as a surprise for me this line of thought. Although I don't agree with it because it's kind of very statist and uh, yeah, not yeah what is called um, orthodox uh, just war theory. Yeah, it doesn't kind of endow people with uh, not on like responsibility also the soldiers for their actions and having it all at the state level yeah so for me it was um, what was striking is the contrast between what I was hearing from my friends in uh, Poland for instance and in Italy as well and uh, what was going on at let's say in the seminar rooms at NYU where just nothing changed, even in the days of, you know, these first hideous war crimes or this uh, invasion like Bucha that it didn't stir anyone and the mood of uh, business as usual was unscuffed. Yeah, that the contrast was very striking. And uh, the, when when people did 
kind of discuss it. It was more about, let's say, what aboutism, you know, that we have, like, obviously in New York, you know, people at the, you know, academia uh, were, first of all, thinking about how the U.S. and the NATO were culpable as well. Uh, you know, it's too much more complicated. Maybe there is truth on, on both sides. All these tropes, let's say, all these tropes. Uh, yeah, it was very present. Thank you, thank you very much. And at the very end of our uh, end of your uh, podcast, could I open the floor? And if, if there are any kind of questions or comments uh, from other editors on the uh, both on the war or or the or the op-ed, feel free to to share with us your thoughts. Maybe I could jump in, Mihal, and well, first thank Ella and Pavel for a really wonderful contribution. Um, that's obviously been our most viewed post, so listeners and readers of Rev them are also really engaged. I suppose the question would be a very simple one of where do you see events going in 2023, if that's a question that can even be answered. Thank you. So, Elan Pavel, the, the floor is yours. Yeah, I hope Ukraine will keep winning and I think it will be happening. But yeah, I don't think that it's close to the end. And yeah, violence is, uh, I mean, I don't exclude the possibility of escalation. So yeah, I can't say I'm optimistic, but yeah, I have no doubt that uh, eventually it would uh, come to to a victory for Ukraine. Uh, Same here. Uh, So I believe that eventually, you know, Ukraine will win. But this would be a very high price. And I'm afraid that, you know, the further escalation, it's inevitable. Uh, So unfortunately, we can see more and more crimes. And, you know, Russia doesn't act rationally so we can expect everything so it's very hard to predict what will happen but i keep fingers crossed for my friends and i will do from my side you know from my uh, small tasks everything uh, what can be done to support ukraine thank you thank you very much so i guess that now is the right moment to to end the, our uh, end of year special uh, podcast. Uh, I would like to thank our, our editors, uh, Renata Uitz, Laszlo Brust, uh, Oliver Garner, Franz Lazzo, Kasia Krzyżanowska, and our guests, uh, Elżbieta Kwiecińska and Paweł Kigin, the authors of the most popular op-ed published by us uh, this year. Uh, we encourage you to follow us on, on social media um, and to look at uh, our website. And uh, we will be back in, in January. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for Thank having you. us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.